Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. Welcome to the Holistic Survival Show with Jason Hartman. The economic storm brewing around the world is set to spill into all aspects of our lives. Are you prepared? Where are you going to turn for the critical life skills necessary to survive and prosper? The Holistic Survival Show is your family's insurance for a better life. Jason will teach you to think independently, to understand threats, and how to create the ultimate action plan. Sudden change or worst case scenario, you'll be ready. Welcome to Holistic Survival, your key resource for protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in uncertain times. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Jason Hartman. Welcome to the Holistic Survival Show. This is your host, Jason Hartman, where we talk about protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in these uncertain times. We have a great interview for you today, and we will be back with that in less than 60 seconds on the Holistic Survival Show. And by the way, be sure to visit our website at holisticsurvival.com. You can subscribe to our blog, which is totally free, has loads of great information, and there's just a lot of good content for you on the site. So make sure you take advantage of that at holisticsurvival.com. We'll be right back. It's my pleasure to welcome Professor Christopher Exley to the show. He is a world-renowned expert on aluminum from Keele University in the UK. He was featured at Natural News this week for his revelations of studying levels of aluminum in baby formula. And this is a, an important and pressing issue, and we're going to learn more about it today. Chris, welcome. How are you? Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, thanks for the inv- invitation to talk to you. Well, my pleasure. And you're coming to us from beautiful England, right? Of course, it's always beautiful in England. Although it, uh, <laughs> Between the, rain. The, the days are drawing in, and it's a little, little bit dreary out there at the moment. But uh, it's always beautiful, of sure, course. But, but I, I remember on my uh, one of my last trips to England, I, I really got to experience the English countryside, and I just ah, oh, it was just stunning. It was beautiful. Yeah, we're we're, we're blessed. We're blessed with many many beautiful areas here. Yes, you certainly are. In such a, in such a small island. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and it used to be in the old days that the sun never set on the empire. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Things are changing. Tell us about aluminum and the dangers. Yeah. Well, my, I mean, the the research area that I've worked in for nearly 30 years now is actually, I, I want to understand everything that I can about how aluminum impacts upon living things. We really began asking the question, is aluminum useful for life in any way? And we don't mean Obviously, it's useful for making cars and this type of thing, but is it useful as an element of life for bringing life and being essential for living things? And we were never able to actually identify anything. And in fact, it's still true today that no living organism uses aluminium for any beneficial purpose whatsoever. And this is very interesting because aluminium is actually the most abundant metal in the Earth's crust. And it creates a sort of paradox because all of the other abundant metals in the Earth's crust and indeed all of the other abundant elements are essential to life. So trying to understand why the most abundant element, and, oh, sorry, metal, and third most abundant element, aluminium, is not essential for life has really been you know, my life's work, trying to understand that. Now, when you, when you really 
begin on that pathway, you, you then, of course, start to come across a number of different areas where aluminium does, or aluminium, as you call it, does impact upon living things. I like the way you say it better. <laughs> I stick to mine because I, I will remember to do it that way. Absolutely. And for example, one way which perhaps many people might have come across, um, and certainly in, in, in North America you had a problem with something called acid rain, and we've had a problem in Northern Europe with acid rain. And certainly back in the oh, mid-70s and early 80s, this was quite a significant problem. And what we've learned at that time, and this is really when my research started in the early 80s, we learned that the acidification that was produced by acid rain, and this is, of course, of man-made origin, this rain, we call it anthropogenic origin, wasn't actually the problem. It wasn't, it wasn't the acidity that was killing fish in lakes or trees in, in forests. It was actually aluminium being released into those lakes or into the uh, soil waters. The trees were taking up aluminium. The fish were being killed by aluminium. And this immediately told us that when aluminium was biologically available, it is actually quite toxic. And actually, this then started to fit with a number of other observations, including observations in humans, where when under certain circumstances where, where humans have been inadvertently exposed to aluminium, we found out aluminium is neurotoxic. It can produce quite a serious encephalopathy, a death of neurons in the brain. We found that it affects bone and bone conditions. We found that it produced an anemia within individuals. But these conditions are mainly what we would describe as an acute condition. And we are much more interested in what I now call living in the aluminium age. Because when I went to school, we did things, we learned about things like the Iron Age, the Copper Age, the Bronze Age. But actually what I've described the last hundred years or so, since we were able to take aluminium out of its inert ores from the earth and turn it into metal, I've called this the aluminium age. And it's the aluminium age because you, you can't even begin to imagine the number of different ways that we actually use aluminium to begin with in our everyday lives. So getting an understanding now of not only how it is used, but the consequences of its use is part of a program that we have running here at Kiel called our Human Exposure to Aluminium program. And part of that is looking at the way in which we know we're using aluminium, and another part of it is perhaps where we might not be aware that aluminium is a contaminant of a number of systems and therefore as a contaminant may also we are being exposed to it and maybe getting inside our body. Talk to us if you would before you go on, uh, this is very interesting, about some of the, the exposure points. Where are we getting it? You know, your recent study talks about baby formula. I believe deodorant and antiperspirant is a problem as well as one of the culprits as well, right? There are so many, but if you want to highlight a few, yeah. you've, you've picked up one there, which is antiperspirants. Now, be careful because aluminium acts as an antiperspirant. It is not a deodorant. So you can get some antiperspirants, well, you can get some deodorants, which are only deodorants. They don't have aluminium in them. But anything which uses the word antiperspirant contains aluminium. And yes, these are incredibly effective at preventing sweating. So yes, you, can, you may be applying about one gram of aluminium salt under each arm every morning if you're a regular user of an aluminium antiperspirant. Other examples are, for example, vaccination. 
we use aluminium in adjuvants. Adjuvants are used to make sure that a vaccine goes a long way, produces a strong immune response to a very small amount of the antigen. And we use aluminium adjuvants. They're nearly the only adjuvant we've used for almost 100 years. Is that in every type of vaccine or just select? Nearly. Wow. Nearly every type. So in other words, you could probably make a, an approximation of 80% or more of all vaccinations ever given included in aluminium adjuvant and still do today because it's very effective and, of course, it's very cheap. So it really does allow you to use a very expensive antigen in very, very small amounts because it promotes the antigenic effect. It amplifies it, in other words. Yeah, that, wow. Exactly. It's very effective, and that's why we use it. So would it be possible, I'm just curious about the vaccines, would it be mm. possible to make that vaccine, if, if you could, have access to it and pay more for it, for it to have more of the antigen and less of the aluminum or none of the aluminum? Or would it not work that way at all? Well, some, for those vaccines where aluminium adjuvants are used, I am not even sure that you would get the same type of immune response if you left out the aluminium adjuvant part, and even if you used more of the antigen. So, and I'm not really sure that those types of experiments have really been done because you, in some instances, you may hardly get any antigenic response at all. It is that important. Now, there are other adjuvant materials that have been used in the past and some that are still used today. Mainly, aluminium has been chosen, yes, because it's cheap and because many people think it's completely safe. Now, it probably is quite safe, but there are a number of people who, it would appear, do suffer a bad reaction to aluminium in adjuvants. In the same way, as they may be people who suffer from similar exposures to aluminium in other ways. You know, we're using it in our medications. We put it in all sorts of food. It's, it, it's in so many different things and so many different ways that the result is that every cell in my body and your body does, does include some aluminium atoms, some more than others, some individuals more than others. And those aluminium atoms, they're not benign. They are biologically reactive. They are biochemically involved in processes going on, but none of those processes are necessary or required or indeed beneficial. So each and every one of us, I always talk about, we're coping with our body burden of aluminium. We have a burden, each and every one of us, of aluminium associated with us, which has come from what we do in our everyday lives, where we live, what we do, everything that we do. And our body has to expend energy dealing with that. Now, so we do not know what the long-term consequences of that are. So some of your listeners or readers, they may have heard of connections with, for example, neurological diseases like Alzheimer's has been a connection between aluminium and Alzheimer's. Indeed, there are other connections with things like Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis. These conditions, we are not sure what the exact connection with aluminium is, and we're not sure whether it's dependent upon, for example, aluminium being accumulated over a lifetime or an approaching lifetime before any effect could be noticed. But there, is, there are definitely strong links here, and they may, they may come from the fact that we also know that with age, we accumulate aluminium in our body. So while we are continually excreting aluminium, that, that that we take in, some of it is accumulating. 
And so we know that when we die, there will be more aluminium in our body than when we were born. Now, all of these factors, to me, even though I cannot be sure whether... my, My intuition tells me that something which has no biological function, it's not required for any purpose, has never been shown to be beneficial in any way, it's probably something we don't want. Well, I would agree and, completely. And therefore, we should, until we know more, until we really understand what the long-term consequences of a lifetime exposure to aluminium, what those consequences are, we should look, we should you know, adopt a precautionary approach and we should reduce our exposure to aluminium as much as possible. Now, this is why, probably bringing you back to the the reason why you called me, this is why the recent research showing very significant levels of aluminium in baby formulas, infant formulas, breast milk substitutes, is really quite alarming because these are the the, the newest and most vulnerable members of our, our society, and we're offering them an aluminium boost in the first few months of their lives. And this, to me, is wrong. So what about the vaccine debate? I mean, we've done some shows on that before, and, and people believe there's an autism connection, etc. And, and then I want to ask you, other than staying away from aluminum, is there any flush, is there any cleanse, anything that can reduce the amount of it in our bodies? Yeah, what, you, what we've got to be careful of, and, and always be careful of, is we, we need to go by the science. And that's something that my group has always done. And for example, we have a research program looking right now at the biological availability of aluminium in vaccines. We're interested in that because clearly something which is so immunogenic has significant biological activity and and therefore has the potential in some individuals to produce harm. And we need to understand that. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it is associated with any of these vaccine-related disorders until we've done the research to say otherwise. At the moment, we don't know. But there are the links, and you've suggested some of those yourself. Now, our philosophy about aluminium is, first of all, sometimes we, the, the people from the aluminium industry think that you know, we, we hate aluminium. We're the opposite, of course. We love aluminium. We, this is what we do for our research. It's our life. It's my life. It's what I do more than anything else. And we, under no circumstances, are saying that, listen, we've got to ban aluminium. We realize that's ridiculous. Aluminium has done a huge amount of good for mankind, particularly in you know, the 20th, now 21st century. In, in manufacturing, though, in it, it, things, In many different ways, that's okay. correct. In many different ways, it's been incredibly beneficial. However, what has never been asked of the aluminium industry, they have been, never been asked to demonstrate its safety in any application, any application at all. And therefore, it's down to people like ourselves to actually to start to look at this, to start to try to understand at what level we might consider aluminium to be safe and at what levels we think perhaps we need to do something about it. In other words, we need to be, if we're going to live successfully and healthily in the aluminium age, we need to understand these so that we can reduce our exposure where it's appropriate. Now, what you asked me about, well, are there ways and means of cleansing yourself? Well, actually, this is a major research program in my group, as you probably could guess, because, you know, we're obsessed with aluminium, aren't we? Right, right. It it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to avoid it. (laughs) Exactly. And you hit the point there. It's going to be almost impossible to avoid it. So what we need to do 
if we can, I mean, apart from, as I think, aluminium should not be included in anything in, in, in the future until it's demonstrated to be safe to do so. Or if it is included, or if it is there as a contaminant, it should be measured and written on the packet or wherever it is to tell the user, or to whoever that is, that they will be exposing themselves to aluminium when they use this product. In the meantime, we have an in, we found an interesting relationship which goes right back to my original work, which was on aluminium toxicity in fish. We were able to show that aluminium has a natural antagonist, something which protects against aluminium toxicity. And that's, that's actually, it's the second most abundant element in the Earth's crust, silicon. Silicon protects against the toxicity of aluminium. Now, this very interesting relationship, is, uh, the chemistry of it is one of the major programs in my, in my team, but also we're trying to apply that chemistry to both reduce the amount of aluminium that we absorb across our gut from our food, etc., and also to re actually remove the aluminium that's already present in the body. And the way that you can do that, and this is going to sound rather simple, but it works, there are on the market, and for example in the US, an example would be uh, Fiji water, and by the way, we do not get any funding from these organizations. There are mineral waters that are rich in the element silicon. And in these mineral waters, the silicon is in a form called soluble silicon, and we call that silicic acid. What we know is that when you drink silicon-rich mineral water, the silicon or silicic acid in there goes into your blood and helps to remove aluminium from your body via your kidney. So you pee, you produce aluminium in your urine. So we are now have a number of programs, both with healthy volunteers, but also been working with people with Alzheimer's disease, people with Parkinson's disease. We're just about to start a study with people with multiple sclerosis, essentially showing that by drinking about a liter or so of a silicon-rich mineral water every day, you are reducing your body burden of aluminium. Now, if you, if you were able to sustain that, now, a litre of mineral water a day is actually quite a bit for most people. Right, yeah. But if you, if you were able to sustain that and keep it as part of your everyday routine in your diet, we've done studies so far over about 15 weeks where we have shown that the, what we call the body burn of aluminium of individuals is definitely reducing. If you could sustain that over months and years, we actually do believe that individuals could gain some particular protection from the possible toxicity of aluminium by doing this very simple thing, a non-invasive... Right, and, and now, this is, is this only Fiji water, or is there... No, 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 other, no, yeah. no I'm, not, I'm not supporting Fiji water. Right, I understand. There are, there <laughs> this show are, is sponsored by Fiji water, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Not, yeah. we, exactly, we don't have any sponsorship at all from them. What, what I can tell you, though, is that there's a sort of cutoff. Now, on a bottle of mineral water, you often do see silicon labeled uh, it, it, and the amount that's in the mineral water on the label. It's often written actually not as silicon, but as silica. And the, if, you, if it says 30 milligrams per liter or 30 ppm or greater, that product should help you to remove aluminium from your body and indeed reduce the absorption of aluminium into your body. Okay, and so there are many, many types of waters that do this, right? No. No. There okay. are not many. Not many. There's a there few. are many in terms of around the world, but in each individual, for example, in the UK, there are probably only three or four that we can buy easily. 
off the shelf, you know, at your local supermarket. And actually, my friends in the U.S. find it relatively difficult to find uh, silicon-rich mineral waters there too. Um, in parts of Europe, it's much easier. In France and Italy, they have a lot, many, many more mineral water companies, and many of those mineral waters are coming from areas, and it's all to do with the geology and geography of the area where the mineral water is, is naturally rich in silicon. We actually use, in our studies, the, the one mineral water company that does sponsor some of our work by providing us with the mineral water free of charge is a company called Spritzer from Malaysia, which isn't available in the US or in Europe. Um, but again, they have a, a, a range of mineral waters with a high silicon content. And for us to do our studies in Alzheimer's and coming up multiple sclerosis, we actually, you can imagine, we need thousands and thousands of liters of this stuff, so we get loads of it free of charge from this particular company to do the research. So can't we just take a silicon supplement of some sort rather than worrying about the, the hard-to-find water? You know, everybody asks this question. And it's the obvious thing to do because you can go to your health food shop and you'll see loads of these silicon supplements. Unfortunately, silicon supplements are generally something called silica. Silica is, of course, what happens to silicic acid when it aggregates, it, it comes out of solution. Silica is sand, essentially. Now, unfortunately, that, if, you can't put, if you took some sand and you dropped in some water, theoretically it will dissolve to give you soluble silicon but you need to wait about ooh, several hundred thousand years or something of that in other words it's a very slow process right. going one way and not the other these silicon supplements many people take them and some people actually tell me that they get some positive results from them that's quite possible because silica is a surface upon which for example, metals, including aluminium, can absorb, and it might help the metals to be excreted in that way. It doesn't give you silicic acid. It doesn't give you soluble silicon. Or if it does, it gives you a relatively small amount in comparison to what you can get simply from a mineral water and sometimes from your own tap water. But it's very rare that tap water is so high in silicon as these specific uh, waters are. So the silicon supplements do not supply you with soluble silicon. So it's unfortunate, and we have for many years been involved with trying to develop something which does. And, and there are companies out there that claim to have developed things that do, and we've tested them all, and none of them live up to the claims. So one has to be very careful about that. I don't want to put people off using silicon supplements. If people find them to be helpful, go ahead and use them. But they are not working in the way in which we understand this particular chemistry to work. And so it sounds like then the, the water advice that you mentioned and just, I mean, can we make an attempt to avoid aluminum or is yeah, it almost futile? Yeah. No, no. You, I mean, I, I make attempts to avoid, avoid it in a number of ways, but I, I, I balance those up against my own you know, personal feelings. So, for example, I eat very little processed food because I know that aluminum is used in the processing of food. And I know that certain types of processed food contain considerably more aluminium than, for example, fresh food where you've cooked something yourself. So, you know, we now live, I'm sure the U.S. is exactly the same as the U.K., in a ready meal, a ready meal world. Everybody goes out and buys ready meals this and fast food that. These are the types of products which will contain more aluminium. So there are opportunities there to cut down, for example, on your aluminium intake. It includes all of our favorite drinks, you know, all these soft drinks, Coca-Colas and similar types of things. 
these are these will have aluminium in them, much more so than you know a, some fresh milk or a fresh juice that isn't long life. The, the other thing we have to worry about is packaging. So one of the problems with the infant formula study was that we found was it's quite likely that the high levels of aluminium in the infant formulas that some of it is coming from the packaging because there's so much aluminium-based packaging used these days. It really is everywhere. And there is good evidence. I mean, for example, long-life products. If you drink long-life orange juice, you know the type you get in a sort of carton that you can keep for a year as long as you keep it somewhere out of the you know, heat and things. Well, these cartons are usually made of a, a, a laminate, trilaminate. They, they often have a cardboard on the outside, a polythene on the inside, but in the middle is aluminium. And that aluminium is brilliant to keeping oxygen out of the product. So that's why it works so well and why aluminium is so good. But there is always some aluminium from that foil getting into your product. And the longer you keep it for, the higher that content would be. So, I mean, I would never drink any of these long life type products. I would always buy fresh orange or something, which is in a plastic or, or perhaps a glass, but generally, I guess, plastic container or paper, just pure paper container or something of that sort. You can also avoid doing things in your kitchen. I mean, you can avoid simple things like wherever you've got acidic foods of any sort, not um, putting them in direct contact with either aluminium in cookware or indeed aluminium foil or tin foil, as you might call it. You can reduce things in that manner. And it, it, it perhaps becomes a way of life to do that. I mean, one of the things that I... I do do is I do apply an antiperspirant <laughs> because I've got, you know I cannot live without it. I I cycle a long way into work every day and it just would not be very pleasant for my colleagues if I was you know sweating all the time. So I make that sacrifice, but I do quite like to drink quite a lot of silicon-rich mineral water to try and compensate for that purpose. So you have you you have to choose things yourself as the way in which you can do something about it. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. And one of the things that I've heard about breast cancer is that particularly women, but men get breast cancer too, but you know, Absolutely. women of course, shaving one's underarms and then applying that uh, antiperspirant is so much worse. It should never be applied on freshly shaved skin because that's when the skin is more open, right? You mean you've raised an interesting subject, and next week I'm off to a conference in Austria on the very subject of, uh, of breast cancer. And right now, there is a burgeoning but small amount of evidence that is implicating aluminium and possibly antiperspirants in breast cancer. That's, all, that's the only place we're at at the moment. A few years ago, we did our first study on this, um, I think published in 2007, where we were able to show that when we took when biopsies or samples were taken from um, women who had breast cancer across the breast, from the area closest to the underarm to the area furthest away, we, in every individual, we always found more aluminium in the breast tissue in the area closest to the underarm. So that sort of alerted us to the possibility that aluminium might have a role to play in this disease. Since then, there's been quite a lot of interesting research which is beginning to give us a possible mechanism also of how aluminium might have a role to play in this disease. And in fact, I'm going to present some very brand new research um, at this meeting, some of which I can tell you about now, which is I mentioned already that one of the ways in which we get rid of aluminium from the body is through our urine. 
by peeing it. Actually, what we've found, and just publishing at the moment, is that it, it looks like the, our perspiration, our sweat, may be a much more efficient way that we are removing aluminium from our body. So we may actually be sweating more aluminium than we are peeing aluminium on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, that's a good thing because we're removing aluminium, but then it raises this interesting question. Yes, but in the underarm area, we are applying an aluminium salt to stop us removing the aluminium by sweating. In other words, it's like a double you know, hit there in that area. Not only are you applying an aluminium salt to prevent the sweat gland from working, but in preventing the sweat gland from working, in that area of the tissue, you're not removing the aluminium by sweating because right. you stop yeah, sweating. because you stop it there, right? Yeah, so that's an, an area now that I think we need to focus on as a possible reason why you, there may be you know, elevated amounts of aluminium in those areas, not simply because it's being applied to the surface of the skin as the antiperspirant, but also the action of the antiperspirant in preventing aluminium being removed from those tissues by sweating. So that's some new research for you that we're going to we're going to reveal. Well, next well week. maybe maybe just in general, peeing and sweating more is good for us. <laughs> absolutely, that, you're absolutely right. Drinking um, just just flushing the system water. More. Yeah, right, right. And and doing exercise. And you know what? There is very good evidence that, for example, take the well-known neurological condition of Alzheimer's disease. Very good evidence that you get protection from physical exercise. Now, we don't know why. No one has worked out why that is. Perhaps it's simply because people who are regularly doing exercises are more efficient in removing aluminium from their body. Right, yeah. It's uh, a possibility. Just as an, know, an, another good reason to exercise. You know, you're, you're just speeding up the system a bit and flushing it more. That, that's yeah, got to be that's good. It's got, it's, that's absolutely right. I'm sure that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, good. Well, give out your website and tell people where they can find out more about your research. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, my, we're, I'm at Keele University. I can give you the website address. It's relatively straightforward. So we're at www.keele, which is spelled K-E-E-L-E, dot A-C dot U-K, and then just forward slash, and then you need to use the English spelling aluminium. So it's www.keele.ac.uk forward slash aluminium. That'll... that'll take you to my website and listen if anybody really wants to drop me an email i'm more than happy to try and answer the questions as well as well as i can good well very good well professor christopher exley thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about this very very interesting research and i uh, i wish you well in doing more research and finding more ways that we can uh, we can uh, keep keep this metal at bay it's, it's not doing us any good so thanks for joining us no it's my pleasure thank you very much What's great about the shows you'll find on jasonhartman.com is that if you want to learn how to finance your next big real estate deal, there's a show for that. If you want to learn more about food storage and the best way to keep those onions from smelling up everything else, there's a show for that. If you honestly want to know more about business ethics, there's a show for that. And if you just want to get away from it all and need to know something about world travel, there's even a show for that. Yep, there's a show for just about anything. Only from jasonhartman.com or type in Jason Hartman in the iTunes store.
Thank you for joining us today for the Holistic Survival Show, protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in uncertain times. Be sure to listen to our Creating Wealth Show, which focuses on exploiting the financial and wealth creation opportunities in today's economy. Learn more at www.jasonhartman.com or search Jason Hartman on iTunes. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, offering very general guidelines and information. Opinions of guests are their own and none of the content should be considered individual advice. If you require personalized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. Information deemed reliable, but not guaranteed.